So hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Chassani and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Roseanne Jepson. Roseanne is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and a lecturer in internal medicine at the RVC's Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. So thanks very much, Roseanne, for joining me today. No problem, Shailen. It's great to be here. So, Roseanne, today I would like to discuss a rational approach to the problem of polyuria and polydipsia um, in dogs and cats, which I think is a relatively common presenting complaint. Um, We won't have enough time to go into it in a huge amount of depth, but what I hope we can do is to provide the listeners with an overview of how we like to think about these cases and how they might want to go about approaching these cases. So, the first thing I wanted to do is basically to clarify what we mean by polyuria and polydipsia. So in other words, does every animal that is urinating and drinking more than normal have PUPD or are there certain criteria that we need to use to actually define uh, these abnormalities? Well, I think to start with, obviously, the exact definition of polyuria and polydipsia are uh, an increase in urination and an increase in thirst. Um, And I think we have to have some kind of decision-making process in when we're going to investigate them as actual clinical problems. Um, In terms of whether there are specific criteria, then I guess yes. In terms of textbook definitions, we'll see it commonly stated that an animal is polydipsic if they're drinking more than two mils per kilo per hour or a total of greater than 100 mils per kilo per day. And so those, I guess, are the sort of finite definitions that we use. Having said that, I think that you can certainly be polyuric and polydipsic and not quite be reaching those specific levels that are stated in the books. Okay, that's interesting, because I guess there's two things off that. One is we'll come on to a bit later, I think, about the whole water consumption measurement discussion. Um, And I guess the other thing is, I'm probably showing my ECC bias here, but... I guess for me, those numbers, again, it just couldn't be that way that that number will be the same for every animal. Um, Absolutely. Different breeds and so on. So um, so, so textbook guidelines, but take it with a degree of pinch of salt. Uh, Absolutely. The individual patient, is that fair? Yeah, that's definitely fair. Cool. Um, Now, the next thing I wanted to do was really talk a little bit about the pathophysiology. And again, I don't want to go into so much detail that we end up kind of putting the listeners to sleep about this. Um, But then on the other hand, I think that as far as kind of pathophys goes, we should try and have some kind of understanding in order to help us manage our patients. Um, And in that sort of context, really, I guess I wanted if you could say a little bit about, um, I guess, the differences between primary and kind of compensatory PD. But also, more importantly, I guess, what kind of fundamentally has to happen in the kidneys that means that you pee more when you can't actually conserve urine, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. So primary polydipsia is actually relatively uncommon, verging on rare in in veterinary medicine. Um, We do occasionally see cases of what we would consider to be psychogenic polydipsia. Um, uh, But most of the cases that we're going to see will have a a primary polyuria and they will drink more as a compensatory mechanism because they're peeing more. In terms of what's going on in the kidney, well, the kidney is an incredibly complex organ. Keep it simple. simple. (laughs) Well, um, so I think the most important hormone that we need to think about when we're thinking about the kidney and concentrating urine is antidiuretic hormone, otherwise referred to as ADH or arginine vasopressin. 
um, ADH is produced in the hypothalamus um, and secreted, stored and secreted from the posterior pituitary gland and it has its primary site of action on the last part of the distal convoluted tubule and in the collecting ducts. Um, when we think about how the kidney's working, the fluid that's in the tubules by the time we reach that part of the kidney is um, hypotonic um, and what ADH does is it allows insertion of um, ports or um, aquaporins that allow water to be um, taken back up from the tubules into the tubular interstitium. Um, so that's the really important hormone. Um, so, and so basically when the, the fluid reaches the latter part of the tubule, it's quite dilute. It's really dilute. You need to remove water back from it. Absolutely. I guess pee more. Essentially, yes. So if um, you don't have enough ADH being produced um, from the hypothalamus or it's not being released appropriately or it's not having an action on the tubules at the level of the tubules um, or you've lost the concentrating gradient between the tubule and the tubular interstitium in the kidney, then you're not going to be able to concentrate your urine. You're going to urinate more and you're going to be polyuric. Okay, and so um, again, we won't talk about differentials in detail because again, we don't really have time to go through each disease, but I, I, I will be asking you a little bit later. Just, um, I guess what we're saying really is that in terms of the differentials, they will essentially result in polyuria by in one way or another, affecting what you've just described, essentially. Yeah, so absolutely. they give rise to a disruption in the normal physiology in the yeah. kidney. Okay, excellent. Um, that's cool. So, I mean, as you've already said this, actually, and I think that's just... Uh, in terms of... Um, we've said already that most of the disorders that we see cause primary polyuria and then a kind of compensatory increase in thirst. Have you actually seen any cases of psychogenic polydipsia that you know of or... Yeah, I think, you know, certainly over the last few years, we've, we see a number of these cases. Um, they've often had some preliminary investigations done by their own vets and they've come into us and um, they tend to be very hyperactive, very excitable dogs, um, sometimes perhaps needing more stimulation in their home environments. And sometimes um, they can be um, dogs that have perhaps been rehomed or have, have come with behave, other behavioural abnormalities. Um, what we tend to find is when we hospitalise them for a period of several days, we'll find that actually they can concentrate okay. their urine. Okay. Um, and, and that's how we tend to pick them up. Okay, that's interesting. I guess on ECC, that's not something that would come our way. So that's, I don't think, I don't think I've in, ever seen one. But. Comes into medicine. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so the next thing is kind of quite open-ended really in a way, but I'm hoping it will just kind of give us a, a brief outline of how you would think about approaching a case. So let's say that a client brings her pet in and says that he or she is urinating and drinking more than normal. Um, for the sake of this discussion, let's assume that the patient is otherwise stable. Um, so that is their only kind of presenting complaint, if you like. And in essence, where do you start with that client? Open-ended question. We haven't got a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess as a medic, the first thing, uh, we need to know whether we're dealing with a dog or a cat. We need to know about the signalment, so the age of the patient, um, and whether it's male, female, entire, um, and castrated, etc. Um, I mean, one of the things that um, I think we always have to be very careful about, and we always sort of say this to, to students, etc., is 
is kind of pattern spotting and saying, so you're an X, therefore you must have Y disease. But on the other hand, presumably that sort of information in terms of signament, um, you're kind of subconsciously, if not consciously, you're always kind of thinking about stuff in terms of what might be going on. You're always going to be filtering information, definitely. So it's just sort of background information that you need to have. And then probably the most important information is going to come from discussing with the the client and with the owner about what exactly it is that they've noticed. Um, And it's important to make sure that the patient truly is polyuric and polydipsic. Um, Make sure that they're not misinterpreting perhaps other presentations such as urinary incontinence, which could also go hand in hand with being Mm. PUPD as well, Um, on making sure that they're they're not referring to palachiuria, so urinating just more frequently, which could be indicative of lower urinary tract signs, um, cystitis, etc. With the the polyuria tipping... I guess a subclinical patient into being incontinent. Is that something you think, you, do we see often? Or? We definitely do yeah. see it, yes. Yeah. Um, it's something to very much be aware of. Um, and I guess that in that situation that you may, from the history, get an inclination that this has been um, a problem that is changing over time. So, for example, um, maybe the, the clinical signs and the incontinence have been gradually getting worse, and that may more represent that the polyuria and polydipsia is getting worse and that the incontinence may, in fact, be a static um, situation. Yeah. Um, and then, so obviously segment history, and then, again, I, I realise this is just very open-ended questioning, but in terms of physical examination findings, are there some things that, presumably we have patients that are PUPD but have entirely unremarkable physical exams, yeah. and others that have something noteworthy. Yep. Um, and what, what kind of things might you find that might help you in terms of uh, deciding about which way you're going to proceed in terms of investigations? Well, I think um, physical exam findings can be really important in terms of honing which diagnostic tests you're going to do first in certain patients. So um, we're going to be interested in perhaps lymph node size. Um, if you're palpating lymph nodes and you find you've got, <clears throat> excuse me, a generalized lymphadenopathy, well, lymphoma is certainly going to be on your list of differentials for PUPD in that case. Um, if you've got an elderly cat and you're palpating the kidneys and they're small and knobbly and irregular CKD is going to be right up there Um, moving back to the dog if you're seeing skin changes uh, pot-bellied appearance then along with PUPD and other clinical signs you're going to be thinking along the lines of hyperadrenocorticism so physical exam is definitely really important but as you say we can see a lot of patients coming in that are PUPD and essentially physical exam is unremarkable Um, and Actually, there's probably two things I wanted to ask you. The first was just to go back to um, when we were talking about uh, water consumption. Um, so I, I guess the upshot of your signalment history and your physical examination is then to make a decision about how to proceed with that yeah. patient. And in, in which patients would you decide, actually, I'm not sure that you actually have PUPD that's considered a problem, as it were, um, and I want to be sure about that? And in other cases, might you say, well, actually... Based on the the history that the client's reporting, plus other findings, I think that's probably a real finding and we want to pursue diagnostics. So would you ever find yourself, or actually I guess if you put yourself in the shoes of a first opinion practitioner, would you think there would be cases in which they would say to the client, well actually we need to go back and document this water consumption before we do anything else? 
Yeah, we, we definitely do ask clients to measure water intake at home, and, and probably that's moved often in those um, dogs that are perhaps younger in age where you think the conditions that are most likely to cause PUPD, well, they're a bit young for those maybe. Um, they've perhaps got no physical exam findings. The client probably is not certain whether it's an mm. actual problem or not. Mm. Um, or maybe in those cases where you've done some baseline screening and have come up with nothing that's immediately flagged as being abnormal. And in those cases, it could well be worth sending the client home and saying, could we could we monitor water intake over a 24-hour period? But it's 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 not a, um, an easy thing for a lot of clients to do. You know, if they've got multiple pets at home, um, they're going to have to try and restrict that um, dog to a single water bowl. Um, so it's it, it's it's not easy for them to do, but it's obviously cheap. And and in terms of that, um, <clears throat> is there uh, is there something to be said for trying to measure water consumption with 24 hours hospitalization or do you think that that can impact on the true level of water consumption if you like it sounds like a bit of a daft question in a way but i guess what i'm trying to get at is if you have a medical disease that is making you urinate more and therefore drink more presumably that is sustained whether you're hospitalized or not absolutely yeah so if you i mean if you've got if you're truly polyuric and polydipsic then it's not going to really matter whether you do that in the hospital environment or whether you do it at home i guess the one time where we can see a difference uh, is those patients with psychogenic polydipsia yeah. where it's something triggering them in the home environment um, that's making them polydipsic um, and then sometimes when we bring them into the hospital environment then uh, if we monitor their water intake um, in, in the hospital then we can see their water intake is normal um, in the hospital. Um, yeah. Okay, so I guess it sounds like there's, um, again, it's, uh, it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it, it is a sort of individual patient decision based on all the information you have available in terms of what you do with that information, in terms of whether you try and document the actual number of how much they're drinking or whether you feel confident enough at the outset to persevere with some kind of diagnostic testing. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it's a clinical decision and it will be, depend on the patient in front of you, the information that the owner's given you and you, and a little bit of your clinical judgment at the time. Because I think one of the things that, um, you know, books, for example, can and, and papers, for example, will, that I think is, um, it's, it's unavoidable in essence because of the nature of the format and hopefully something like this is a bit more conducive is, you know, that trying to convey the fact that, that everything is in black and white essentially and that you have to have some discretion and clinical decision yeah, making absolutely. and it's not just client reports this you do that um so that, so that's great and um again we we you know i'm sure we could talk about what what sort of investigations are needed for a very long time but i guess the one thing i wanted to stress that you said already was in terms of maybe um focusing your investigations appropriately based on the information you have and i guess this is a ridiculous question in a way and you can answer it if you want but um, what minimum testing does every confirmed PUPD patient require? I well, say you don't have to answer it. That's that, well, a ridiculous <laughs> question, but I think you know what I'm trying to get at, really, in terms of do we just throw the book at them, or actually do we go by step by step? 
where do we start? It's going to depend again on the client and, and the patient in front of you. Um, if you've got a middle-aged older dog um, that has come in, it's been losing some weight, um, then you, and you, your first test could be a urinalysis. You find that that patient is glucosuric. Um, diabetes mellitus is top of your list well then you're going to confirm that with a blood glucose um, and a fructosamine and you may have made your diagnosis at that point that there'll be some other testing you might want to think about like urine cultures um, and having a baseline biochemistry and complete blood count in that dog ideally at that point in time um, but that would be a, a, a very short and snappy route to making a diagnosis I think the challenging cases are, are obviously those where the baseline diagnostic tests, the biochem, CBC, urinalysis, urine culture don't flag up an immediate cause. Um, so I guess, what, I, guess, um, I guess what I'm trying to do is be a bit naughty and actually because of, of most of the people that we anticipate listening to the, these, this podcast series will be people in first opinion practice sure. and, um, and undergraduate students as well and I guess I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a practitioner that has a client that really doesn't feel able to pay for yeah. a lot of diagnostics. And yep. you're trying to decide, well, how do I get the, I hate this phrase, but the best bang for my buck really and say, if I can only spend X amount of money, what are the best things to be doing? Yeah. Um, because I think otherwise, yeah, sure. I mean, as you say, within terms of the baseline screening, there's lots of things we would like to do but yep. in terms of deciding which ones to focus on. Um, and again, it's a difficult question for you to answer because obviously it depends on the individual patient. So I'm kind of being a bit unfair uh, in that respect. Um, excellent. So then the other thing I just wanted to kind of ask you really, which was um, we've obviously spoken already about the fact that underlying PUPD there is pathophysiology and that the disorders that can lead to PUPD will usually disrupt the normal physiology in one way or another. And in that context really, out of interest, do you have a sense, either in, in our own hospital or just in terms of the literature, um, about what would you consider to be the three most common causes of PUPD, first in dogs and then in cats? I think um, in, in dogs, uh, the commonest causes of PUPD, certainly in the middle age to older category, are going to be diabetes mellitus, chronic kidney disease, and hyperadrenocorticism. And I think that would be true for the general practitioner. Um, we obviously see a, a smattering of the other rarer conditions and referral practices as well. And in, in cats, um, chronic kidney disease, uh, and diabetes mellitus would be my number one and two. Um, yeah. Um, and actually, that prompts me to ask you something else, really, or to, to make another comment, really, which is, I guess, that not every PUPD patient is azotemic, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, it's just an obvious thing to say in a way, but just from, from listening to what you've just said, I guess chronic kidney disease and therefore probable azotemia may be found but it certainly may not be um... no and that boils down to that uh, fact that's stated in uh, again a lot of textbooks that you have to have lost up to 75 percent of functioning nephrons um before you become azotemic so and i'm gonna ask uh, you a really horrible question now but is that true <laughs> well do you know what i once tried to trace that back and went through a whole lot of references back to the early 1900s and it's really hard to find oh, out really? where that actually came from stop teaching um, <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I don't think we can stop treating it because there's definite truth in it. But, uh, you know, well, where exactly those figures came from, who knows? But um, so it is certainly possible to have um, uh, CKD and to be non-azotemic, but to have uh, an increased thirst and urination, definitely. Um, and I guess if we're really chasing that, then sometimes we get into the realm of doing GFR measurements to try and document that they do have reduced kidney function. But that's that's a test for down the line. See, that's interesting because I think most people, um, myself included, would not find azotemia and assume it wasn't related to the kidneys, therefore, as in a primary disease. And, and you're just saying that that's not true. So that's interesting. Um, okay, fine. And in terms of the, the loss of nephrons, um, I guess... We'll stick with the 75% number. We'll stick, we'll, we'll stick with that because I, I can't give other figures. So, yeah, we'll stick with that, um, but just always bear that in mind. Okay, um, awesome. Um, I think that was pretty much all I wanted to chat about today, really. Did you have any kind of final comments or any things that you wanted to mention that I've left out that you really wanted to say or do you think we've covered enough for today? I mean, I'm hoping that, um, you know, as the podcasts go on, we'll come back and actually discuss some of those common disorders that you mentioned, for example, in more detail, focus on yeah, them specifically. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, PUPD cases, they, they can be challenging, um, but they can be quite rewarding to work up. Um, you just really do need to have a logical approach um, and uh, within the constraints of what the, the client is able to obviously to do. And once you've hopefully made a diagnosis and worked out why, then the clients are usually really pleased if there's a, a treatment option available that's going to reduce the need for them to get up in the middle of the night to let their dogs out. Um, yeah, and I guess it's one of those things also that um, if someone brings you a patient that, that has PUPD, there isn't a, an obvious thing to give it. Like, no. It's not one of those circumstances where you can say, we'll have this drug and see how it goes, because... You no, don't really know what you're treating. So. It's one of those things where you really are going to have to investigate to try and work out what's what's going on. And, uh, and that's really important to discuss with the clients at the outset, that it's going to be a question of trying to work out what is causing their dog or cat to be PUPD. Um, and until we've come to a diagnosis, we can't give them any magic pill. Um, awesome. No. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I think that's all we have time for today. Um, so thank you for joining me, and I hope that I'm going to be able to persuade you to come back in the future and talk sure. about a few things. Um, and to the listeners, as always, do feel free to, to get in touch and provide your feedback, um, either asking for more information about some of the things that we talked about today, in which case I will go and happily harass Rosanne some more, um, or just about ideas for future future podcasts and so on. So you can email me directly at um, sjasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page um, or you can tweet us at, at Royal Vet College using the hashtag um, SAClinPod. Um, and so until next time, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>